0: This morning we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. When I was in 8th grade, my family moved from our home in northern Kentucky to northeast Georgia. And it was a move that brought us closer to family, but further from my friends. So in an effort to try and make new friends uh, and have something to do, I decided I'd go out for the football team. Now, I'd been playing some pee wee league, and I'd done pretty well there, so I thought it would be fun. So on the first day of summer practice, my mom went to drop me off at the school. All the other parents were dropping their sons off, too. And everyone's, you know, a little bit nervous. I, I was a little bit nervous. I'd, had, I'd never been, I don't even think I'd been in the gym at that point. <clears throat> um, but I remember as I was getting out, my mom looked at me and said, uh, Philip, uh, these boys are big. And in my blissful ignorance, I remember saying to her, well, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And let me tell you, I am so glad that no one else heard me say that because most of the guys on the team were much bigger than me. I was, I was pretty average, maybe even a little bit bigger than most of the kids in my grade back in Kentucky, but there was something in the water in Georgia, and these guys were just bigger. And so I was motivated. I was going to go out there and assert myself on the field, but most of the time I was the one that got knocked down. Uh, I remember getting hit by one guy who went on to play Division I basketball, And my helmet literally got knocked off. And I thought, yeah, I need to get bigger if I'm going to be playing this sport. I was really just too small to to be on the line. And I was too slow to be a back. So I had fun. Our team actually won the region. But I learned my lesson that while having heart matters, winning on the field takes strength and ability. And if the desire to win doesn't lead you to work on getting better, on putting the work in the gym and on the track and on honing your skills, Uh, That desire can only get you so far. And getting out of the van on that hot summer morning, I made the mistake of overestimating my strength and my ability. I kind of got embarrassed for it. Uh, Maybe you can relate to something like that in your own life. You think to yourself, I've got this. And then you get in the thick of it and you realize that you don't got this. Those are humbling moments, aren't they? They are uncomfortable. They are moments that expose our weakness. They upend our pride and our self-confidence. They show us that we are not invincible. I want to propose to you this morning that moments like that, which as uncomfortable as they are, really are something we should be thankful for. It's good to challenge yourself. It's good to find your limits. It's good to know, not just theoretically, but to really understand that we are limited, finite beings so that we will not trust in our own power and our own achievements, even in our own righteousness, but rather that we will must entrust ourselves to the power and the purpose of Almighty God. When the nation of Israel crossed over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, they were stepping onto ground that was dominated by people and nations that were bigger and stronger than they were. The task that God called them to was going to require more than they had to offer in and of themselves. So as Moses stood before the people on the east side of the Jordan River and talked to them about the law and preached to them to prepare them for what was ahead, he wanted to make sure that they understood that their victory was secure, but it was not because they had some ability in and of themselves to get it. Rather, it was because God was going with them and because God was determined to give them what he had promised. There would be giants, but those giants were going to fall. Not so much because of Israel's determination, but really because of God's. And in this passage, Moses makes us consider the greatness of the task set before God's people. But he does that in order to show us the greatness of God so that we will learn not to depend on our own strength or on our own ability or on our own purpose, not even on our own righteousness, but that we will depend wholly on God. The end result of this passage is to make us consider the greater glory of God, along with his righteousness to judge the wicked and to rescue his people. So let's begin by reading our text. If you would please stand with me as I read Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1-5. through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today. That he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Not because of your righteousness, of the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you so that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. well the main idea of our passage is this our God is a consuming fire who judges the wicked in righteousness and who rescues the repentant this is the reason why we really have to give thanks in this season as Christians we have many things to give God thanks many blessings in our lives but nothing is greater than this relationship that we have received in righteousness from God because of his work in Christ. And that's what I want to unpack with you this morning. Uh, this passage is really a passage that is meant to shake our grip from holding on to that self-righteous mindset that wants to look to our own hand to deliver us so that we may find true safety, true security, and true courage to go boldly in the strength of the Lord. This is a charge from Moses, first given to, to Israel, but also then to us, warning us not to think too highly of ourselves but rather to think greatly on the power of god to accomplish his purpose of salvation now just before this in chapter 8 moses has warned the people of israel and by extension has warned us not to depend on the strength of our own hand to think to ourselves that somehow we can take credit for the good blessings that are in our lives and now he shifts a little bit to warn us not to think too highly of our own righteousness. Indeed, this is a message that is preached to us across the whole canon of the Bible. We flatter ourselves to think that the blessings we enjoy in our lives are somehow related to our works, and we easily forget that anything that we do which is fitting and pleasing in the sight of God really is the result of the work of Christ for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So if we are to have a thankful heart, a heart that is fitting of the gospel we have received, a heart that's fitting of the season that we are in, we must daily remind ourselves that the peace we enjoy with God and the blessings he gives to us as his sons and daughters are the result of his gracious work for us. The strength of a Christian is in the strength of our God, and Moses makes Uh, He he really, if you can visualize here, Moses brings us to three windows, to look through three windows into the character of God to help us empty ourselves of a prideful heart and to take on the posture of a humble heart so that we may prevail and be victorious in the great things that God has set before us to do. So this morning we're going to be looking through three, um, three aspects of God's character that Moses brings us to. First, we'll be looking at God's power. We're looking at his power. Second, we'll be looking at God's justice, his justice. And third, we'll be looking at God's grace. The first window that Moses brings us to, to to help us see see God and, and to live rightly, is really God's power. God's power is meant to be the fuel that equips God's saints with the faith they need to take the field, even against giants. There are two great mistakes that any commander can make going into battle. He may underestimate the strength of the force he is facing, or he may overestimate the strength of his own force. Either one of those mistakes always proves to be lethal. As Moses is here working to prepare the Israelites for the battles that are ahead of them, He is careful to guard the people uh, against making either one of these mistakes, of underestimating the the strength of the forces they are going to face, or of overestimating themselves. In verses 1 and 2, Moses talks about the strength of the enemy forces that the Israelites are going to face once they get into the land. Let's look at what Moses says about them. First he says that they are many. Israel is going to face seven different nations and many more cities. Israel is going to take them on one at a time, that is at least until they come to the kingdoms in the north and they kind of form a coalition. This is going to take time. It's not like the people are just going to have to fight one battle and then everything will be theirs. This is a campaign that is going to last for a long time. And it's going to bring them up against different people and different nations all with their own strengths, all with their own resources, and it's going to challenge them. The second thing that Moses says about the people they will be facing is that they are greater and mightier than Israel is. And now at this point, Israel was fairly large, but remember that they weren't professional soldiers or conquerors. Their parents were slaves. They made bricks. They themselves were desert wanderers without the resources or the infrastructure that these other nations had. The third thing that Moses Uh, makes a point of saying is that the cities that they will be taking on will be well-equipped to withstand them. Moses calls these cities great and fortified, even up to heaven. Jericho had a reputation, uh, which is the first city that the Israelites are going to come to, it had a particular reputation of being impenetrable because it had great walls that had never been breached before. The fourth thing that Moses says about the people who Israel is going to be facing is that there are giants in the land. Now, if we look back to the report that was brought by the spies who had first gone in and back in Numbers 13, we see that this really was what threw the Israelites into a frenzy and made them rebel against God at Kadesh Barnea. The spies had come back and said, yes, it's a great land, but we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. The land is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. The point of the spies is these guys are huge, and they think that we're small. I find it interesting that in preparing the Israelites to go into the land, Moses never downplays the challenge that they're going to be facing. If you're trying to motivate a team to go against another team, you don't talk about how good the other team is. But Moses is doing that. Moses, Moses is not downplaying this at all. In fact, he's very clear. It's not just these guys are a foot taller than you. There are real giants there. There are people who are towering over them. There will be giants on the field of battle. There will be enemies for them that are too great for them to face on their own. Moses is being very real with the people about this. He does not want them to underestimate the threat that is in front of them, nor does he want them to overestimate their own ability. And the reason is, is because the success of this campaign, the success of the promise, Israel's hope, which is meant to lead them onto the field of battle, is not a hope in their own power or in their own ability. Rather, it is based wholly on the power and the strength of God. Notice how Moses transitions from talking about the strength of these other people in comparison to Israel. And he transitions in verse 3 and says, Know therefore, so because they are this strong, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you or at the front of you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So the reason Moses doesn't downplay the height of these enemies and the strength of these cities is because he wants the people to know that their victory over these same enemies is certain, because their strength, the strength of their enemies, is nothing compared to the power of the God who had loved Israel and called them out and was going before them to give them victory. God was not merely going to equip Israel for the fight ahead. He is going before them into the battle itself. The odds of the battle may have been stacked against Israel, but they were never stacked against the Lord. And so that is what Moses wants the forces of Israel to take with them that when they stand across the field from people who are huge and terrifying, they will not be afraid because they know the one who is with them, who has gone before them. As we read about these giants in the land, it's difficult not to think about Goliath, right? Goliath, in all his might, went and challenged the armies of Israel. But in time it with David, we have to ask ourselves, what, what was his height to the Lord, who went with David and gave Goliath into his hand? What were the armies of Pharaoh who chased Israel into the Red, to the Red Sea? What were they to the Lord who, who made his people cross over safely but then consumed Pharaoh's army in the surf? What was Pilate to Jesus who stood on trial blameless and then laid down his life for his people and then took it up on the third day, removing the sting of death and the power of sin from over us? Friends, the Lord is a man of war. He is a king who goes to battle for his people, and the greater the enemy, the harder they fall, and the greater the glory God gets. The reason God calls his people to take on hard things is not because God expects us to overcome those challenges in our own power, but rather he calls us to do those things because he aims to exalt his name by showing his power as he clears the field of the enemies that face his people like a wildfire on the plain. He aims to fill our hearts with joy in the strength of his deliverance. And so he brings us against hard times and shows his power over them so that we may know there is no one like the Lord. If God is for us, Paul asks, who can be against us? What shall we fear? Why why do we find our hearts discouraged and downcast? The Psalms ask, hope in God. He is our salvation. His arm is never too short to deliver us. His love is steadfast and true. He is our rock and our redeemer. So no matter how dark the night seems, the Son of God's power always rises and always prevails. If you're like me, then sometimes you may find yourself being discouraged at the way the world seems to go. You may find yourself despairing, asking a lot of why questions. Why would God allow this? Why wouldn't he stop that? Maybe we have been looking at the state of the world the wrong way. Maybe we have lost sight of God's promises about how he will raise up nations and put nations down, about how he will raise rulers up and put rulers down, all as a part of the plan that he, of what he has determined to exalt his glory in the earth. The best stories, the, the, the stories that really, truly matter, the ones that stick with you, they always contain great adversity. That is what makes the faithfulness of the righteous in those times so sweet and so beautiful. That is what makes those stories worth remembering. Friends, there has never been a better opportunity to hope in the power of God than there is right now. There is nothing to give us greater comfort than the power of God right here and right now. The enemies that we mourn over us will not prevail. Our God is a consuming fire who redeems, who saves, and who restores. We have this as our guarantee because we serve a risen Christ who has already secured that victory for us. In our our dining room kitchen area, we have the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism visible where we can read it. And it says, it asks this question, it says, what is your only comfort in life and death? What it means is what is your comfort in every situation you find yourself in, good and bad? And the answer it gives is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. When the power of God has captured your comfort and your care, when it rests on that, then you are able to say, no matter what situation I am in, there I am exactly where God wants me to be, and I trust him. Friends, if you have trusted in Christ, then you are his, and you have nothing to fear from any giant that may stand before you. Your heavenly father loves you. His purpose is to glorify his son, your king, by doing good to you. There are no rivals to his power. There is no one who can undo his purpose. Surely he works all things, even the dark times, together for our good. So let me encourage you, take to the field, commit yourself to the work. The giants will fall, and the glory of God's power will be all the more glorious for it. Now Moses brings us to a second window to look through, to see something of God's character, to help us in our faith. And that window is the window of God's justice. In showing us God's power, Moses means for us to understand that God is just and that the wicked will get what they deserve. In verse 4, Moses gives a key command to his listeners. He says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord has thrust them out from before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Now, this window is meant to work in two ways for us. First, it is meant to make us fear the Lord, to understand the depths of his holiness and how dangerous his glory is to sinners. Second, it is meant to comfort us To know that God will always uphold perfect justice. I'll say more about those two things in a moment. But for now, let me just ask you this question. What was the reason God put the Canaanites under this bar? Why Why did he tell Israel to destroy them completely? To show no mercy, to make no covenant, but to make a complete end of them? Well, Moses has just told us. It was because of their unrepentant wickedness. In one sense, the ban was to protect Israel from falling into the same sins. But in another sense, it was God's judgment being poured out on the Canaanites through the, through the means of Israel's conquest. So as we look at the events of what happened in the book of Joshua, we need to understand that there is justice being poured out there. The destruction of the Canaanites was just. That is important for us to remember. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And what it means is that the result of sin, the appropriate reward of sin, is death. In going before Israel and driving the Canaanites out and making them perish quickly, God was giving the Canaanites what they deserved. The sentencing that fell on the Canaanites might seem a little harsh to us, to destroy whole nations from off the face of the earth seems out of character for, for a God who has also said that in, His, in His own word that He is love. I, I have heard many people refer to the way that God dealt with the Canaanites and say this is why they do not believe in Him as if it's up to them to decide whether or not He exists. So I just want to offer a word of caution to you about this. It is important that we should wrestle with these things. But it is also important for us to see that we are not in a position to judge God. It is he who is the judge over us. And to paraphrase Abraham, as he interceded before the Lord for the city of Sodom, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. In Romans 1.18, we are told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For 400 years, God endured the Canaanites and their sin. For 400 years, God gave them over to the desires of their hearts and the lusts of their flesh. Uh, He allowed them to go their own way. But just as he told Abraham, there was a time when God's patience ran out with the Canaanites. When the full measure of their sin was full, he gave them over to destruction. He paid them their wages. In Ezekiel 33 verse 11, God tells us that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but He he does delight in upholding perfect righteousness. God is just because He is holy, it is part of his, His very character. He does no wrong when He brings the wicked to their appointed end. In fact, He upholds His holiness. And that is what is happening here in Canaan with the Canaanites. If that strikes us as offensive. The problem is really not with God. The problem, I think, is with us. Because sin corrupts our perspective on holiness and justice. That is why I think we squirm a little bit when we see this. We have all sinned. And so it is important for us to conform our understanding of justice to what God has made clear in his word. The truth is, I find that we are all quick to call for justice when someone or ourselves, when someone sins against us or someone we love. It is a despicable thing for the, when the wicked seem to get away with their crime. It, it should make you mad. Injustice makes us angry and rightfully so. We cry out against it. We demand that people be held accountable for what they do. Forgetting that includes us too. The truth is, that human justice can only go so far. There are, only, there are too many limits to our knowledge, too many limits to our understanding, to our laws and even to our motives. What's more, the fact of the matter is that every sin, though it may be immediately against another person, is ultimately against a holy God who sees completely into the very heart and the motives of a person. And he has announced that he will not allow the wicked to get away with their crime. He has staked his very name to that, and he will satisfy holy justice. Now, this should do two things for us. First, it should provide us with a sense of comfort. There are no cold cases with God, no mysteries that are, not, that, that are unraveled by his wisdom and understanding. He keeps account of everything that we do. He tells us in the book of Revelation that we will all stand before him and give account for every word, every deed, every thought that we do, think, and say. God sees in secret and knows the heart. What is done in the darkness is as light to him. Whatever wrongs have been done, all will give account to him. In the end, when the Lord judges the world, we will all see and we will all say that his judgments are right. So why should that comfort you? Well, it should comfort you to know that the wicked don't get away with it. The the, the things that happen, and whether someone has prestige or wealth or some position of power that gets them off, they will not have that with God. When someone wrongs you, they will give an account before the Lord for that thing. And that is the second thing it should do. It really should frighten us. It should comfort us to know justice will be upheld. But it should also, I think, strike some little bit of fear into us. God is not partial with his judgments. And that means that because we have all sinned, we all deserve to suffer his just wrath. Take note of what Moses says to the Israelites as he's talking about the destruction of the Canaanites. Don't say... That is because of your own righteousness that God has thrust these people out from before you. Understand that you are just as bad. The whole rest of this chapter is going to outline all the different ways that Israel rebelled against the Lord in the wilderness. And they are many. Initially, I think I was going to preach this whole chapter to you this morning. And as I was getting into the study of this, I thought, I I can't do that. There's too much to talk about in the chapter ahead. And it's all laying out Israel's unrighteousness. So this is the introduction to that. This is really meant to be a wake-up call because it is easy to look at the Canaanites. It is easy even to look at the Israelites and to shake our heads at them, to think, yeah, God would be just in destroying them. But the reality is that we all deserve the same fate. And so we need to feel that. We need to feel the weight of that because until we do, until the depths of God's anger towards our sin is felt in our souls, We will never see God's grace for the amazing thing that it is. If the significance of our sin is lost to us, we will never value true justice, and we will never truly marvel at what it means for God to look at a sinner and to say, you are righteous. Apart from that, we will never understand how truly amazing and even mysterious it is to say that God loved us even while we were yet sinners and sent his own son to die for us. You will never love the cross of Christ or seek to take it up if you do not first feel how deeply you have offended God, how right he would be to cast you into hell this very moment if it were not for the atoning work of Christ. And That brings us to the third window that Moses presents to us to see and savor the glory of our God, and that is to see God's grace. God, in his justice, will see that the wicked get what they deserve and that the repentant will get what they do not. This is the window into God's grace that makes the bitter truth about our sin sweet. Look with me at verse 5. Moses again says, making sure, hey guys, don't think it's your righteousness. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, he says. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So just based on this, we could read all of the Old Testament history and come to this conclusion. But just based on this, these two verses, verses 4 and 5, we can see very clearly Israel really wasn't any better than the nations they were about to drive out of the land. I, I know that might seem wrong because we've just said that God is not partial with his justice. He always does what is right. So how can it be that he would give the Canaanites over to death and then give this land of life, this new Eden, to Israel? Well... We have to say that although in justice God gave the Canaanites over to what they deserved, in grace He gave to Israel what they didn't deserve. And the explanation that Moses gives to the people about how all this can be has to do with the word that God spoke to their fathers, specifically to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So at the heart of this inheritance, we find God's covenant, His promise to Abraham to give Him an offspring, to bless Him, and to bless all the nations of the earth through Him. That covenant was a gracious promise that God took upon Himself, and in the New Testament we learned from the apostles why that covenant was so important for our salvation, since that promised offspring was no one other than Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate Son of God, the one who fulfilled that promise. By taking the curse of our sin upon himself, atoning for that through his death, and then rising in victory over that death, so that all who repent of sin and trust in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. I think I hear people talk about Christians as self righteous people, and that may be that, that critique may be true, because I think some people have misused the gospel. And done exactly what Moses says don't do to assert themselves and to trust in their own righteousness. Why, why should God let you into heaven? Oh, I'm a good person. I don't do these things, and I, I try my best over here. That's not holiness. As Christians, we should be people who are very familiar with how fallen we are. And we should also be well familiar with how great God's grace is that restores us. It is no small thing that Moses should center the blessing of Israel that they were receiving on this covenant promise, because it shows us that Israel never earned the land. They didn't earn it. They graciously received it as a gift of God's power and his love. God gave it to them because in his kindness, He chose them and redeemed them and dwelt with them and gave himself to them to be their God. There was no injustice on God's part to do this since he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So while God handed the Canaanites over to the wages of their sin, he rescued Israel by making his covenant with them, by giving them his law, by putting his presence in their midst, and by preparing them with the work that he was going to do through Jesus. As, most, as, as Paul explains in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest or made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let's put these two passages together. God will not have any of us to think that somehow we are deserving of the gift we have in Christ. He will not have us think that we are somehow more righteous than anyone else because in his holy sight, We are not. We have all sinned and fall short of his glory. You hear that word, as Paul says, there is no distinction. The first two chapters of Romans are dedicated to showing you that wherever you fall, religious or not, you have sinned against God. So the credit of grace, the credit that qualifies us to receive life instead of death, belongs to God. God gave his son to be crushed for sin, to fulfill justice's demand, to redeem us from that death that we deserved. And in him he has also given us all things, even a heart to believe the gospel, to respond to it by repentance and faith, and the spirit who works now in us to conform us to be like him. All these things are of God's grace, and they're the reason the Christian is called to have a heart of thankfulness. Not a heart of pride, but a heart of humility, recognizing that all of this is the gift of God. Friends, understand that if you are a Christian, then all you are is of Christ. If there is something commendable in you, it is because of God's grace. You have received the riches of God's mercy and his love at the expense of the hell that Jesus went through on that tree. By the grace of God, while the wicked and the unrepentant receive what they deserve, those who trust in Christ receive what they do not. Our righteousness is alien to us. It is not our own, but it is given to us as the richest gift a person could ever know. At the beginning of the sermon, I said that this passage is really meant to shake our hands loose from clinging to a self-righteousness, a righteousness of our own, and instead, it is meant to open them to receive in thanksgiving a rich confidence and an unshakable hope for the future. And I hope you can see what I mean by that. And it is so easy for us to look at all the blessings that are in our life and to think to ourselves that somehow we've done something to earn them. I, I, my dad used to, you ever heard that song, the Butterfly Kisses? must have done something right to deserve it. My dad, I remember my dad in the front seat of the car driving back from town, just losing it. Like, you don't deserve anything. It is so easy to fall into this sense of the blessings in our life are there because somehow we must have done something right to deserve that. It is also easy for us to think that God's love for us is contingent when it is an undeserved love, to think that maybe because I've done this or I haven't done that, that God's love is that I deserve that. Or to think that because I have done this or because I haven't done what he's told me to do, somehow his love fails. How often do you start thinking to yourself that God's love for you is somehow contingent on something you have or haven't done? How often has that kept you from prayer? How often has that kept you from your scripture because you don't want to be convicted about it and you're afraid of what you might read. How easily we cling to our own good works, forgetting that compared to the holiness of God, they are nothing but filthy rags. The good news of the gospel, the great news of the gospel, is that our worth before God is not a worth of our own making. That declaration of innocent that comes from the throne of judgment to those who trust in Christ is not because they did this or didn't do that. It is because of Christ. Our security with God is not a matter of what we do. It is completely resting on what Christ has done for us. So the real call of this passage is a call for faith a call to rest in the work of Christ for us, a call to break from our sin, and a call to find security for ourselves with a thankful heart and in the inheritance that has been laid up for us in glory. And being emptied of confidence in ourselves, we are then truly enabled to live in the unfailing promises of Christ because he will never break his word. He will never violate his justice, and he will never run out of grace to heal those who humble themselves before him and trust in him. So, brothers and sisters, I think you'll agree with me. We have so much to give thanks to God for in this season, not only for the ways that God constantly pours out his common grace on us, giving us food to eat, giving us friends and family, giving us a church body, giving us a town to live in, But even as we give thanks for those things, we give a special thanks for the saving grace that he has poured out on us through his son. As we go from this place, let us go out boldly in the confidence of God's power. Let us go out humbly and tenderly, having been reacquainted with God's justice. And finally, let us go out in peace, because God's grace is great. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we recognize that it would be easy for us to, to look at the world around us and to, to shrink back from obedience and to say, uh, there, there are giants on the field, Lord. I can't do that. And yet, Lord, in your word this morning, we have seen that the power to overcome is yours. You, you go before your people to defend them, to pave the path. Lord, you uphold your justice, and you also pour out your grace. And so, Father, as we have come before you in your word this morning, as we have investigated these things and seen that we ourselves deserve your wrath, but because of your love, which you so richly poured out on us, we have this mercy and this salvation. Lord, we pray that you would equip us with confidence this week, that we would rest in Christ and find joy whatever circumstance we find ourselves in that we would find security and safety in the arms of Christ, that we would come to him with our burdens and our sorrows and see how he mends them and makes them new. Lord, we pray this in the glorious name of Christ. Amen.